Hi, I'm Lisa Weaver, and this is Healing Jephthah's Daughters, the podcast. Welcome back to the HJD podcast. This week, it is my privilege to welcome my friend and colleague, the Reverend and Professor Yolanda Norton, Professor of Hebrew Bible at Seminary of the Southwest, as well as the creator and curator of the Beyonce Mass, a womanist worship experience. Yolanda is going to help us gain a better understanding of two things within the text, the city of Mizpah, where Jephthah's daughter lives with her father, and the customs and traditions that governed that time. But first, let's get a little context. As a practice, we will read the judge's text that is pertinent to each episode. So for today's conversation, our focus text is Judges 11, verse 34. However, to situate it, we will be reading verses 29 through 34. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh. He passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whoever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return victorious from the Ammonites, shall be the Lord's, to be offered up by me as a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. He inflicted a massive defeat on them at Aror to the neighborhood of Minith, twenty towns, and as far as Abel Kiramim. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and with dancing. She was his only child. He had no son or daughter except her. In the churches I belong to, we haven't talked about that story very much, you know, which makes sense, right? It's not like a happy ending story other than uh, another way of saying, like, you know, when you're faithful to God and you, you know, ask and make a serious vow, like, this is how serious it is. Like, as my dad would say, like, it's serious as a heart attack, right? It's serious as sacrificing a virginal daughter. So the way I thought about starting this conversation was to think about safety. Absolutely. And I go back to a conversation that you and I had. So in some ways, today's episode is an expanded version of our conversation. I'm thinking about Mizpah as it relates to safety. Mm -hmm. And I remember you talking about Mizpah being a place of, of safety, of a fortress type place. 
And then I began to think after that conversation, well, if Mizpah is a place of safety from a fortress and military standpoint, Mm -hmm. and Mizpah is also the place in which Jephthah and his daughter live, then what does it mean for her to live in a place that's known for safety and yet it ends up being unsafe for her? Yeah, so I think there are a couple of things going on there. So if we if we're talking about the language itself, we we know that Mizpah roughly means something like um, a lookout point, uh, a watchtower. It it lets us know that wherever we are in in um, in Israel, that it's it's a fortified space, right? And um, we know that that space from what the Bible tells us, right? We know that it's a city of the tribe of Benjamin um, and that it has some proximity to Jerusalem. So generally, if you're going through into this from a textual perspective, we know we're somewhere between uh, seven to 10 miles outside of Jerusalem, likely to the north. And so this city of Mizpah, it shows up several times in the Hebrew Bible. Hmm. It's the place in Genesis where Laban and Jacob um, made the agreement that God will watch over them Hmm. while they're apart from each other, right? It's marked by this piling of rocks. Um, It's also the place where um, the unnamed Levite travelers, concubine, was sexually assaulted by the men of Gibeah, mm-hmm. right? So it it has um, a life throughout the Hebrew Bible. So uh, what that means for people like me is that um, well before I started doing this work, that there were um, scholars who were trying to retrieve a physical location for Mizpah because that's part of the work that we do. And so there's some sense that archaeologically, that this um, ritual and uh, military site is uh, Tel in Nesba. Mm -hmm. So a Tel is really, uh, in archaeology, is a stratified piece of land. So when we do digs, we, we dig very slowly, layer by layer, and we try to understand something about the civilizations that existed in that time by digging down. And so because um, the materials that people built with uh, in the ancient world were not as durable as the material that we use today, oftentimes what we see happening is that um, uh, people would take the things that had deteriorated and use them as the foundation to build the new town, you know, some 50, 100, couple hundred years after the first town was built. So uh, Tel Nezba, um, which is found in the southern part of Israel, is generally believed to be the, the site of Mizpah in the Bible. Okay, so fortified space, it's a lookout point, it's a watchtower. So in this story, then, he comes home to this place. Now, I don't have a sense of direction or geography, but is Mizpah, if he's coming home, I'm thinking he's coming in from battle. Uh-huh. And so Mizpah is this place between the outside and, and, and home. So is there a way in which Mizpah is supposed to, like, protect Israel or protect? Well, well, any of these, I mean, uh, home is in Mizpah, right? So he would live within 
there's some sense that he would live within the the city gates, within this fortified city. Ah, okay. Um, and so, yeah, he should understand it as a, as a place of belonging and as a place of security. But just because he understands it that way doesn't mean that we should assume that that his daughter gets to. Ah, that's 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 what I'm getting at. So so it so it does represent like a place of safety, security where one can feel safe or protected. One should feel. One should, right, right, right. In theory, based on location and what it means. That's that's helpful. Yeah. What I would say is that what becomes important in understanding that this is the place where the Levites, concubine, second wife, however you want to translate that terminology, and we won't get into that today because that's not the text at hand, but... Um, <laughs> Appreciate you, Bob Scott. Yeah, but there's a pattern established where men are protected in Mizpah mm. at the expense of the women. Okay. That's consistent, right? Because it's just his daughter and the concubine. Mm-hmm whose lives are both violated to protect the sacred men. Mm. Okay. And sacred men that you introduced another dynamic, right? About being unsafe at the hands of sacred men. I'm, I'm going to pause there. Cause I want to go back to something that you said, right? So come on with it. And this, and part of this is my Bible study days before I went to seminary and mm-hmm. all those other things. So, right. But you said that Mizpah was the place where Jacob and Laban made that agreement. That in churches with particular demographic markers, that's all I'll say about that. It, you know, hmm. we've heard we've heard that we've heard that called a benediction, and I now I've also heard the correction say it's really a malediction. I don't know if that's necessarily right. Those are the liturgical concepts that I, I'm not going to step in because that's your wheelhouse. I <laughs> I do what I do. Okay, right. Labels notwithstanding, what I do want to raise is that. Even as the place where Jacob and Laban made this agreement, it wasn't a pleasant agreement, right? It wasn't, it wasn't one that was made with joy and regard. It was like... I, it was fraught. It was fraught. But with respect to women and this place, there's a theme that this place is not safe for women and that women are violated and that women are not safe. Yeah. Um, and as you say, at the hands of sacred men. Well, let me, let me just say this. I want to pull on that Jacob and Laban thing. What's consistent about Ms. Mm-hmm. because this shows up in Genesis, but it also shows up in First uh, and Second Samuel, yes. that... There are often some kind of ritualistic agreements that are made in Mizpah that are fraught. And there's inherently some kind of confusion between the parties mm. in these in these covenants. So if I were uh, reading, uh, which we are, if I were reading Jephthah's Daughter in the context of the location itself, mm. uh, my anticipation would be there will be some kind of miscommunication that has long-term implications. And since there's a woman in the story, Mm -hmm. it's about to go down in a common vernacular. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. That there is some kind of miscommunication. Mm -hmm. We see that with the vow, but we're going to deal with the vow another time. Mm -hmm. That has implications that are not good. Correct. So broadly, she lives in a place that is supposed to be safe and in which she is protected. So there is minimally an irony that the place in which she lives 
that is supposed to keep her safe ends up being the place that she ends up being sacrificed. Absolutely. But the same is true of her father. Uh Uh-oh. It is both the place and the person who are supposed to keep her safe. Yes. And not only her father, but Father Warrior. He is her father. And so there is a protective relationship that we presume fathers are supposed to protect their children, but also as the warrior the military leader of the place in which she lives. Well, his role as warrior is a part of what creates the tension, not the congruence. Hmm. Because the question that's raised in the vow is what's important, what's more important to him, family or nation? Dang, that's good. So I think in our contemporary setting, we often think, well, if you're going to be a fighter, why not fight for your family? Hmm. Okay. But part of what's being built here is this question of what is most important to him? If there are three different categories of significance, God, nation, and family, God and nation kind of get placed on the same team. Right. And so what's on the opposite team is um, is his daughter. And in your saying that, I'm thinking, okay, God and nation, right? What's more important, nation or family? On the one hand, my brain went to, is family subsumed under nation? Like your family is part of the nation? So... Absolutely. But at, and, and at the same time, my brain flips and says, I don't think Jephthah's making nation priority means that nation is priority for him. Nation is priority for him only to the extent that he can be head permanent position and not commander because he's already been kicked out his house, right? He negotiates commander head. There's that tension. And so nation is important as a means to being permanently established back in a place where he was rejected. Does that make sense? Uh So you said that, you know, what's more important, nation or family? If I say nation, the question that rose for me is, is he really concerned about the nation or is the nation really the thing that he needs to be concerned about? Because he's really concerned about his place. Right. Right. Because they go find him in the wilderness. They're like, could you fight for us? And he's like, aren't you the dudes that kicked me out with what? <laughs> right? Y'all put me out. Yeah. Well, don't worry about what we did to you. That don't really count. We're in trouble and we need you. So is nation important to Jephthah? My silence is because I, what I want to say, what I'm going to say very candidly, and, um, but don't want to send us down a rabbit hole, is isn't that true for most of the men in the Hebrew Bible? Yes, thank you, period, full stop. And we are not going to go down that, <laughs> that rabbit hole because that right. will be another podcast where we will yes. have, yes, yes, and we will have that conversation. But I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. Yeah. Whew. Okay, you just gave us a lot. So Mizpah is a military city and it has all the elements associated with it being a military fortified city. It has types of weaponry or arsenals, perhaps a watchtower that allows military personnel, soldiers, etc., to see dangers or threats from a distance and then to appropriately respond to them. And to the extent that fortresses and weapons and watchtowers makes one safe, Jephthah's daughter and the city's inhabitants should all be relatively safe, right? 
So we should assume this about most of the cities in the southern uh, portion of Israel, and maybe most actual cities in Israel. They usually have a double fortified wall with with some sort of tower that gives um, a military advantage so that people can see what's coming. So yes, and um, clearly the author wants to emphasize that point in this particular text because they name the city the very, the emphasizing the name of the city, this dynamic. Like, am I the friend? I don't know if I'm the friend that needs to be going with her because I'm the one that's like, okay, so let's look for some loopholes. What exactly was the vow? How did he say it? Who did he say it? Who did he make the vow to? Were there witnesses? What's on the other side of these mountains? Molly, you in danger, girl. All right, so we've got Mizpah. My other question is the second half of verse 34. There was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and with dancing. Can you tell us about the expectations of women after men return from war? Well, so this is why I kind of feel like I don't mess with Jephthah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't mess with Jephthah because when he made the vow... He knew it had to be his daughter. Mm, Okay, okay. When men go out to war, it is always the women in their household who come out to greet them when they come back. So, of course, the first person you would see when you came back was your daughter. So you made a vow that very clearly, very logically meant that you knew you were offering up your own daughter. Okay, hit pause there. Mm -hmm. Because that's a huge point. He made the vow knowing that. You and I have had the conversation about how I read as a person who is not a Hebrew Bible scholar, where, where the narrator says the spirit of the Lord fell upon Jephthah, which lets the reader know he was going to be successful. Mm-hmm. But in my English translation, it doesn't, there's no language to suggest that Jephthah knew. However, in talking to you and other Hebrew Bible scholars, they're like, yes, Jephthah knew. That's another story. Again, been living with this text for three decades. I was so angry when I read commentaries by mainly white men who want to exonerate Jephthah, who want to let God off the hook and want to have the woman participate in her own demise. What do I mean by that? Commentators have said, oh, he didn't really kill his daughter. He actually took her to a synagogue and she lived out the rest of her life as a virgin unmarried. Mm-hmm. That's not what the text says. Mm-hmm. Number two, I've heard, well, the daughter actually wanted to commit suicide. She overheard her father make a vow. And so she decided to be the first one out the door. Mm-hmm. That is so speculative for me. And there's nothing in the text to support that, right? It's just wrong. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. So so it was an expectation. That was the custom. Not only did Jephthah know it, mm-hmm. but the daughter knew. Mm-hmm. So warrior dad makes dumb vow. God 
answers petition. Jephthah is successful. Right. Comes back home to the place that is supposed to be protection and safety and security. Knowing the custom that the women of the household are the first to come out to greet the winning warrior. Mm -hmm. Daughter does what is custom, what is expected, Mm -hmm. what she has been raised and formed to do with the accoutrement, with timbrels and dancing. Correct. In a very... uh Exodus, Miriam, why, right? Yes, exactly, exactly. So from a literary standpoint, then we get this last line in verse 34. She was his only child. He had no son or daughter except her, which heightens the intensity, right? He, he makes this reckless vow, knowing the custom of his time, Mm-hmm. Presumption on my part now, knowing that his daughter is going to do what she's supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And you realize that the thing that just happens ends his family line. And, and as far as we know in the text, now, if he got another wife and some other kids, we don't know about that. But just in terms of what we have in the text. Yeah. So the irony of her living in a place of safety but she ends up not being safe and she's not safe because she did what she was supposed to do for her father warrior. And it ends up costing her her life. Yeah. Thank you. That was so helpful. And Rich, that was really, really good. Can you give us a closing word about Jephthah's daughter? I am always challenged to think more deeply as a result of your insights. And to be honest, I'm thinking about Micaiah Bryant, Breonna Taylor, and so many other Black women whose lives are harmed by systems that are supposed to keep them safe. Um, Jephthah's daughter stands in a very dysfunctional lineage in the Hebrew Bible. It is not the first or the last time that a child is offered up for sacrifice and that that act is called holy. Right. So we think about what happens to Isaac in uh, the Akedah in Genesis 22. We think about Jephthah's daughter. If we move to the New Testament and we talk about what happens to Jesus, we have a scary history of normalizing the sacrifice of children and calling that thing holy. Um, And so if we want to bring that to Micaiah, it's, it's um, there is a way that black bodies that are being offered up are being deified and they're being deified rather than deal with the systemic issues um, that are at play in our society. And so we have to stop. Uh, and that's not to say that we don't need to honor the humanity in McKee and we don't need to honor the humanity in Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and the modern Arbery and all of these other people who have been assassinated. But it's also to say that we have to reconstruct a system that doesn't make room for the murder of our children, of our family, and call it holy. That's the problem with the way that we read Jephthah's daughter, right? Those white men that you talked about at the beginning, what they're doing is they are saying that her death was holy, that it was God-ordained, that it was good and proper, And it is problematic when we read scripture, particularly texts like this, as prescriptive 
And because we've read Jephthah's daughters as prescriptive, as because we've offered Jephthah up as this good and moral person, we continue to not address problematic parenting and problematic systems that allow for the death of our children, physically and emotionally. Well, and, you know, Yolanda, to your point that it is called holy, you know, white men not wanting to indict Jephthah or God. I mean, Jephthah shows up in Hebrews 11 in the roll call of faith. He shows up as a hero in the New Testament. And these are the heroes of the faith and so and so and so and so and so and so and Jephthah the Gileadite. Mm-hmm. Derek Chauvin is somebody's hero. Oh my God. That's what's problematic to me, right? Like some, um, I forget the young man's name in, in Wisconsin, the white boy who killed folks in Wisconsin, but you know, people were donating money to his GoFundMe page for his defense, right? Like these are somebody's heroes. And so I'm, I'm so intrigued to see how history really will record these events. Yep. We haven't done the victims any justice. What came up for me as you were talking about the people who have been murdered, right? That there is a way, you said deified, that we make them martyrs, Mm -hmm. right? And that means something. There's a particular, to use your word, there's a particular hermeneutic that attends understanding someone as a martyr. And is that right or fair? Part of what I'm saying about this is, George Floyd didn't have to be perfect in order to deserve to live. Breonna Taylor didn't have to be perfect in order to deserve to live. And that matters because there is a way that that continued narrative requires something of marginalized people, of Black people, of of, um, LGBTQ people, Asian people, right, in order for us to honor their lives. And so part of what we need to be able to say is we don't know Jephthah's daughter's story. She does not have to be a perfect being in order for us to understand that she should have endured in the story longer than she did. And that there was something traumatic and improper and and wrong about her father's actions. And that you know, like Brianna Taylor, like Sandra Bland, like Rakia Boyd, right? Like we have a list, like my earliest memory is Eleanor Bumpers, okay? You know, right? Like we can call the role. And 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 all of these women, like Jephthah's daughter, lived in places and in contexts where they should have been safe. Where the people who are responsible for their care and welfare, all of that failed them and they died. They were murdered. They were killed at varying ages and in varying contexts, having mental health crises, being pulled over and detained, sleeping in your bed, this object of a wreck foolish vow, right, right. All of these things where women were doing what they were formed, conditioned, trained, taught, fill in the blank to do. And their people and their context and their situations failed them and they were murdered. And what are the implications for living in Mizpah, the place that's supposed to keep you safe and with your father? The person who is supposed to keep you safe 
and with the father who happens to be the warrior who's supposed to keep the nation safe. What happens when everybody but you, the daughter, the girl, the woman, the black woman, everybody but you is safe and you are unsafe? Yeah, it brings up it brings up daddy issues. It brings up some you know gender issues, of course. You know that's kind of like the default, right? Um, it brings up victim blaming in a really awesome way. Like that's always fun, right? Like oh my god, you brought something on me, me who made the vow that you were nowhere near, but and I'm going to take your life. But man, you have caused me problems by being a faithful daughter right now. But it was just one of those things of why would you even make that vow? (laughs) Like, why is that the vow for you? Yolanda, thank you for having this conversation today and bringing your biblical wisdom and expertise to the text. Context matters. And so it is important in examining stories and our lives that we understand as much as possible the contexts in which these things, our stories, our lives take place, as well as the tensions that accompany them. For this story, it is important to understand the irony of the location in which Jephthah's daughter lives. She lives in a place that is understood as being safe, Mizpah with a person who is expected to keep her safe, her father. However, for Jephthah's daughter, neither the city nor her father end up being safe. Neither of them are places of refuge. So in ending our time together, I want to ask some questions. What was your Mizpah? Or what is your Mizpah? I want to invite you to interrogate your own stories as a way to enter into your own healing journey. Were you ever unsafe? In what ways were you unsafe? Safety can be emotional, psychological, physical. There are ways in which women can experience being unsafe. For some children, There was a disproportionate amount of yelling for simple accidents that happen as children accidentally drop a glass. Was there a disproportionate amount of yelling? Did you fear being yelled at, critiqued, harshly criticized? Was there physical abuse? And for those of you who are parents, I ask this. Are you parenting in ways that make your children feel unsafe? Are you parenting the way you parented? For all of us, consider what you need to heal from these wounds. What would make you feel safe? What do you need to do to be safe? We recognize and understand the seriousness of domestic violence in our country. And for anyone listening, if you need help, support, resources. The National Domestic Violence Hotline is a 24-hour hotline. The number is 800-799-2222. 
800-799-7233. An easy way to remember, 800-799-SAFE. Take care of yourselves and do what you need to do to stay well. Today and always, my prayer for you is freedom, healing, and wholeness. Healing Jephthah's Daughters is a part of the Theolab Media Podcast Network. Theolab Media is a collective of humans committed to creating a more candid dialogue about spirituality, culture, and the world around us. Find out more by visiting theolabmedia.com. Today's episode was produced, edited, and engineered by Brandon T. Maxwell. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, Make sure you share this episode or the entire podcast with a friend. Molly, you in danger, girl.